Today we celebrate the grace of God as Roe v. Wade has been overturned in our country. It's amazing to see the division that even this decision is bringing to Americans. Those of us who believe in the sanctity of life, life in the womb, we are celebrating. But the battle is continuing. Let's take a moment and thank the Lord, but then let's continue to explain to others what abortion is really all about and what happens not only to the unborn baby, but what happens to that mother and the father of that baby. Carol Everett had been involved in over 35,000 abortions when I interviewed her many years ago. And I told her I would pray, and in her presence I did. I would pray that she would be used of the Lord to rescue far more than that in the days ahead. She has given her life to pursuing a pro-life agenda. And I think today is an example of what a committed believer can accomplish when we give our lives totally to what we know is the will of God. I'd like to today reflect on that conversation with Carol Everett, and it's going to be the sensitive area of what really took place in an abortion. So we're reminded of why this decision by the Supreme Court is something that we should truly celebrate. I asked Carol, when an abortion is taking place, what happens to the unborn baby, the fetus? They tell them they send it to the lab, and they're very gentle about it, you know. They just send it to the lab, but that's a lie. They actually put these babies down the garbage disposal, and they don't want anyone to know that. You see, then there's no evidence. They don't know if it was too big. They don't know if she was not pregnant. The evidence is gone. Of course, um, I deal with this constantly and, and, and pray through it when, when one comes up. But uh-huh. the thing I remember most is that they all had intestines and organs. I know that sounds terrible, but, you know, they were all meant for life. Not one of those was meant for death. And then the babies that were so big that the muscle structure was so strong that they wouldn't come apart, those were second, third trimester abortions. And those babies would come apart head from body. And I really have some problems with those because, you see, those had to be taken over to a, another abortion clinic's trash receptacle and left because you didn't want them found in yours. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it was my job to do that. We stopped doing saline abortions, John, because they're, they have this tar- horrible complication of live births, you know. Right. And so... They've stopped doing saline and prostaglandin, and those were the procedures where they withdrew the fluid from around the baby, injected a drug, mm-hmm. which really suffocated the baby, but also burned its body. It would die, and then the mother would go through labor, deliver the baby, and many times, of course, alive. And then they would let those babies die, or they would push them down into formaldehyde to, mm-hmm. to kill them. And it just took so long, and the woman had to go through labor and, yeah. you know, this terrible problem with live birth. You don't want that. So they went to what is now called a D&E, a dilation and mm-hmm. evacuation. And that's where they go inside the uterus with huge forceps called Beerhoff forceps, and they crush the baby and bring it out in pieces. And this way you don't have live births. You have the pieces that you have to reconstruct to be sure you got it mm. all. But that's it. There is a demonic deception that allows people to believe that this is acceptable behavior, that this is not really a a person. But not only have people continued to embrace this, 
there are those who are willing to continue to abort babies, and now there's a movement to literally take a baby outside of the womb and determine whether or not the mother would allow it to live. And I asked Carol about those late-term abortions. With the second and third trimester abortions, um, I held the baby in place with my right hand so that uh, the doctor would know where all the different parts were. And my job was to tell him the head's here, the buttocks are here, the feet are here. Point with my left hand to what I was holding with my right hand and tell him where he wanted to go next. Because you see, he's working in a blind space and, and he needs someone to help him. You can feel them move and, and you can feel them as they pull away from the instruments. In retrospect, I now know how those babies were in a lot of pain. You have to be sure that everything's there and you don't want to miss any major piece. And then a woman's uterus will start clamping down and pushing things out. So then mm -hmm. you can tell if her uterus is clamping down. You can tell if it's free. Yeah. And again, that was my job to check with my hand to be sure that everything was out and that her uterus was going down to a normal size to remove the placenta, everything. I want you to hear what took place at Carol's clinic to a 32-year-old woman. She was 20 weeks pregnant. I was up in my office, and the doctor came up front and said, come back to the recovery room. And I went back there, and uh, there was blood everywhere. It was on the wall. It was on the bed. It was, she was bathing blood. I'd never seen so much blood. And I'm an operating room technician. He said to me, um, you know, she's had a clot, and she's passed it, and her uterus is clamping down, and I've told the nurse there's a nurse there to massage her fundus, which is the top of the uterus, and a uterus will clamp down and push out when that happens. She said, all right, she's going to be fine. I have a day. I'm going to leave. You discharge her when she stops bleeding. So I'd never seen that much blood again, so mm -hmm. I stayed back in the room with him. I didn't go back to my office. And the massage of the uterus did stop the bleeding, and we thought that she was okay, but her blood pressure was low. And we looked at her chart, and again, I'm not a doctor, her Blood pressure was high when she came in, but she could have been nervous. It went down, and that's when she was bleeding. came up a little bit, but it was not normal. She kept telling us that she always had low blood pressure, and we tried to call the doctor and couldn't get him. She'd stopped bleeding. Everything was fine. We finally let her go. Her boyfriend called the doctor at 3 o'clock in the morning and said, she's cramping heavily. And he, without taking a history, said, put her in a tub of hot water. What happens when you put a woman in a tub of hot water is her uterus opens up and pushes out. And so when he put her in that tub of hot water, the last little bit of blood in her body actually pushed out. And the boyfriend called back and said she's unconscious. And the doctor said rush her to the hospital. And she was taken to a major hospital right here in town. And she was technically dead. The problem I have with that is no one at that hospital ever called the newspaper. None of the emergency room doctors ever reported it to anyone. None of the nurses in there ever called a newspaper or reported it. It was a Friday night that she came in. We were doing abortions that Saturday morning, and no one knew that a woman had died as a result of that abortion the night before. And then even worse than that, her body was sent over for an autopsy, and the coroner checked it and found that she died as a result of a cervical tear, a tear of the mouth of the womb, which could have been repaired if the doctor had just taken more time. We had everything right there in the clinic, and the coroner did nothing. No one ever knew that woman died in our abortion clinic. In my conversation with Carol... Uh, she tells the story, an amazing story, of how one church and the leadership of that church believed that they could reach out to this abortion clinic and to the owners of the abortion clinic. And the person that they really focused on was Carol Everett. And so I asked Carol to take us back to that abortion clinic when she had that Bible on her desk. And she told me every day she prayed. 
Well, I prayed about those abortions all the time. Every day I prayed that we'd have a lot and that there would be no complications. And I had a grandmother that prayed. But we were moving along. We were um, going to open three more clinics. Yes, I was at 125000 in July of 1973. I'd already made that much. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, planned to make two sixty that year, open three more clinics, and I would be making a million dollars a year. And that was my goal. That's where we were headed. Mm. But if we were going to do that, we needed to get a few problems straightened out. And, of course, the problems were between the partners. And so I called our financial advisor, and he sent in what he told us or introduced to us as a business consultant. He sat down with each of us for an hour, the three partners for an hour, brought us back together for a fourth hour, and gave us a piece of paper with six points on it. And all six of these points were in my favor. And so I started asking him questions. And finally, I'm not sure why, I said, are you a preacher? And he said, yes. And I said, what in the world are you doing in this situation? And he said, God sent me. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, I am a Christian, I have a Bible in my desk drawer, and I tithe on all this abortion money, and God doesn't talk to people. Well, as you <laughs> might understand, it took a lot of time, a lot of discussion, but he actually told me that not only he, but he and his elders felt that they had been called into this situation. They felt there was someone in there that the Lord wanted out, and actually had given them a 30-day period of time in which to do that. And I thought, he is crazy. <laughs> But, you know, we prayed a prayer of salvation that day. Well, I thought I was a Christian. I didn't think that was going to change my life. And asked me if I wanted to receive Christ. And and for some reason, I said, yes. We prayed this really weird prayer. Mm -hmm. Make me a worker in your vineyard. And I went, okay, I'll pray that. You know, no problem with that. And dismissed it, thinking nothing was going to change. I was going to go back into the abortion clinic, continue doing abortions, and my life would not be a, a moment's difference anywhere. But when I went back in the abortion clinic, I started seeing that these women were not dancing in, saying, I'm finally pregnant, I'm here for my abortion. I saw women that were hurting, women that were saying, I want to do something else. This is the last place I want to be. And surprisingly, I found myself counseling women not to have an abortion. And that really confused me. And I went back to the the counselor, to the preacher, and said, you know, I can't believe what's just started happening this week. And he said, it hasn't just started happening this week, Carol. Your eyes have just been opened. You've just started to see it. And the reason she started to see it is she was now forgiven. She now had the Holy Spirit of God working within her. Now, when it comes to Carol, I asked her the question that I'm sure probably weighs on your heart, especially if you have tragically had an abortion. And that is, how do you find and experience God's forgiveness? And so I asked Carol to, to tell me, how did you process this? How did you reach the point where you could continue to function and now knowing Jesus Christ is Savior? We never think that we're good enough to experience God's forgiveness. And, of course, we don't deserve it, but he gives it so graciously. And, of course, about six months after I became a Christian, I found the 139th Psalm. And that was when I realized that I'd been involved in the deaths of over 35,000 babies. And as only our Lord can, he started working me through them one by one. You know, he never gives us more than we can handle. I came to understand that forgiveness, but I could not deal with the fact that I'd kill my own baby. I was actually speaking out for two years against abortion, but not dealing with the fact that I'd kill my own child. Mm. And when I finally confessed that to him and gave it to him, I went through a grieving process that's very similar to losing a member of your family that's here. And as we talk about that baby that I killed, I still feel as though it were a baby, it was a son, it was actually born, 
And when those women understand that and deal with that and give it to the Lord, He can handle it and He can help us to understand what we're to do. I can imagine that today there are some people who are listening that this decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade is something that has stirred up your heart and your emotions because you had an abortion or you were a party to an abortion. If that be the case, we want to make sure that you understand the grace of God that is demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ where we find forgiveness. This is something we want to do in light of this epic decision by the Supreme Court. That email address, once again, is john at org. Thank you so much for listening.